Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the work that it does in us. Oh God, you are almighty. And nothing in this world, nothing in the heavens, nothing that we can possibly conceive of compares to you and your greatness. And so, Father, no matter how hard we try, we always underestimate you. But we ask that today, by the power of your Spirit working within us, that our eyes would be opened, that our ears would be able to clearly hear what you would have for us. Teach us, Lord, full obedience in order that we may walk in your ways and delight in your truth for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. I know that we've been in this book for 19 months now. We've been in Genesis for 19 months, but we're actually going to be covering a whole chapter today. Um, and, and from here on out, there are going to be some bigger passages that we'll be able to uh, to cover. And so hopefully, um, by the end of the year, we will be done with our study in Genesis. Our next study is going to be the book of John, the Gospel of John. So if you want to study ahead, uh, that's six to eight months out at least, probably. Um, but you got time to study it. So if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 33, we're going to be covering the whole chapter. And let me just give you the, the principle that underlines this whole chapter, that, that we'll see throughout this whole chapter. It's this. Partial obedience unto God is ultimately, nevertheless, disobedience. And anyone who's a parent will know this from experience, right? You ask one of your kids to take out the trash, and, and what do they do? You know, they, they, maybe they'll take it all the way out to the garbage can, but maybe they'll leave it right outside the front door instead of taking it all the way out. Or you ask them uh, to clean their room. And, well, they kind of do, but really all they do is shove everything under the bed or they shove everything into the closet. Even if you're not a parent, you know this to be true from your own experiences. You, you know, you, you roll through a stop sign. You, you slow down, but you don't stop completely and you get a ticket because slowing down isn't good enough. Or your boss tells you to, to finish some report by the end of the day and you know that you had better not leave before you finish it because if you don't finish it, there might not be a job waiting for you when you come back the next day. Partial obedience unto the Lord is nevertheless disobedience. And yet when it comes to obeying the Lord, this is so often what our lives produce, isn't it? I think if we're just willing to be honest with ourselves about it, we all too often not only struggle to, to, to obey fully, you know, it's, it's easy to do it partially. So there, there is part of us that struggles to obey fully, but we also far too easily fall for the temptation to justify partial obedience. I know that all too often that is certainly the case with myself. And maybe as you look at your life and you consider your ways and your decisions and your walk with the Lord, you see that it's also the case with you. As we continue our study of Genesis today, we'll see that it was also something that even Jacob struggled with. 
And if it's something that, that he struggled with, we can certainly expect to struggle with it ourselves. It's something that he not only struggled with, but he struggled with it greatly. You'll recall that in the previous passage, in chapter 32, he spent the night wrestling with the Lord. All night. And, and at least two things were drastically, drastically altered in his life on that night. First, he was injured. The Lord touched his hip, and it was injured. He would walk around with a limp for the rest of his life. But that was just a reminder of his weakness. It was, it was a reminder of not only his weakness, but God's faithful care and provision could be physically seen that way and physically remembered that way. What grace to, to, to have that experience, to have that weakness in order that God's strength would be seen more clearly. But perhaps more significantly than Jacob's injury was the fact that he was renamed that night. His new name, assigned personally to him by God, was Israel. Israel, which means God prevails. And here's something that's very interesting. If you were to, to go ahead and read the rest of Genesis, you'd see that this name is actually interchangeable. These two names, the, the author goes back and forth on them. Moses sometimes calls him Jacob. He sometimes calls him Israel. Actually, he's referred to Israel from here on out only 23 times, but he'll be referred to Jacob throughout the rest of, the, uh, throughout the rest of Genesis 45 times. 23 times Israel, 45 times Israel. Jacob, almost twice as many times as he's referred to as Israel. And so we have to understand as we're entering into this text that the names Jacob and Israel are actually interchangeable. It's referring to the same person, but it depends on the context. It kind of depends, what he's referred to kind of depends on who's acting, the old man or the new man. And, and the reason that, that we see this is because while Jacob was truly a man of God who, who had been changed, he still had the same sinful tendencies that he had always struggled with. In the previous chapter, he wrestled all night with the Lord. And that seems like an amazing thing to be able to do, to wrestle all night long. But for the rest of his life, Israel's going to be wrestling with Jacob. He's going to have this internal wrestling match going on for the rest of his life. You recall that the wrestling match with the Lord took place on the night that was prior to, right before Jacob encountering Esau for the first time in 20 years. And the last time these two saw each other face to face, Esau had vowed to murder Jacob and Rebekah, their mother, had instructed Jacob to run away and to live with her brother, Jacob's uncle Laban. And she had told Jacob that when the coast was clear, uh, when, when Esau's temper had kind of simmered down a little bit, she'd send word for him so that he could come back. But he never heard from her again. In fact, there was, as far as we know, there was no contact between Jacob and his parents ever again after he ran away. So in his mind... This is, this is right before he's going to meet Esau. And it feels like the end of the world is at hand. Esau is coming to take revenge. And justice would be served. Justice that he knew, that Jacob or Israel knew in the depths of his heart, he deserved. But before Jacob was ready to deal with Esau, God dealt with Jacob. God dealt with Jacob. Jacob had had this history of 
of being a cheater, really. Just a, a plotter, a, a schemer, you know, taking matters into his own hands instead of trusting in the Lord. But now the time has come to face Esau. And really, he has no choice but to trust in God. Because with his limp, what's he going to do if Esau charges at him? He can't run away. He's put in a, in a position where all he can do is trust in the Lord. Immediately after the Lord departs from Jacob, which concluded the 32nd chapter, we read this, looking at verses 1-3 to in chapter 33. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So what we see here is that this passage actually starts out on a very positive note. It's a very, very high point in Jacob's walk with the Lord. You remember how Jacob had sent all of his possessions and his family on ahead of him on the journey to Canaan, and he stayed on the other side of the Jabbok River where the Lord wrestled with him. Well, at this point, he has rejoined them, and when he looks up and he sees Esau coming, he demonstrates a newfound courage, a confidence in the Lord that we haven't seen before. He positions his, his family and, and the servants in a way that gives Leah and Rachel and the children the best chance of escaping if Esau, if Esau uh, decides to attack. So he puts the servants in front and he puts the youngest of the children in the back. But look at what else Jacob does here. He goes ahead of everybody. This Jacob who was so afraid the day before, now he goes ahead of his family. And if we know anything about the type of character that Jacob has been since day one, since the day he was born, this is not like Jacob at all to put somebody else after himself or before himself. He's protecting them. No, this is, this is Israel acting. This is the new man who's strong in the Lord, and now he's weak in the flesh. But as he bows seven times before Esau, it looks like maybe his courage is tempered a little bit with some newfound sense of humility as well. Or is it? Commentators are kind of divided on this, but I'm inclined to think that this wasn't humility. Him bowing seven times before Esau wasn't so much humility as it was a reflection of the struggle that Jacob is having with Israel. The struggle that Jacob is having within himself to fully trust in the Lord. So again, we see Jacob versus Israel going on here as he bows seven times before Esau. See, Jacob doesn't need to, to bow before Esau. He doesn't need to prostrate himself before Esau because Esau has actually already forgiven Jacob as we're about to see. And besides, if you think about it, if, if Esau forgiving him and, and taking it easy on him is because of Jacob's actions, who gets the glory? God or Jacob? 
because it was Jacob who came up with this idea of bowing seven times. So Jacob versus Israel. So, so why is Jacob bowing before Esau? I think it's because in his flesh, he's wondering if maybe the Lord wasn't going to save him after all. He's wondering if, if this is the end of, of God protecting him. And so he starts taking matters into his own hands again. And as we continue in this chapter, commentators are really more divided on this chapter than, than any other chapter that I've seen thus far in Genesis. Some applaud Jacob's courage, you know, going before his family, putting himself in harm's way before his family to meet Esau, while others put him on full blast mode, and they kind of disparage him for lacking faith and for trusting in his own plotting and his own scheming. Some applaud the way that he exemplifies the, the, the type of humility that's necessary for there to be reconciliation between somebody who's hurt somebody and the person that they've hurt, while others would say, you know, that God was already the one who had ensured that reconciliation would take place. So at the end of the day, you might say, okay, these commentators are so divided, who's right? And personally, I'd say, well, to an extent, they both are. I think it's okay to land somewhere in the middle because we see some some very good and some very godly changes in Jacob. But at the same time, we need to understand that he's like us. He's a work in progress. His faith wavers. His faith waffles at times. So so yes, he's he's a changed man, but at the same time, the sins... And the sinful tendencies and, and sinful habits that he's always had, they, they, don't, they don't just magically vanish. He's been radically altered as a man, absolutely, but yet he's unaffected in many ways. He, he walks by faith, but he still faces the struggle within himself, this wrestling match within himself between Israel and Jacob, the temptation to walk in the ways of the flesh as he always has trusting in his own schemes and his own plots and his own understanding. And I think that if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, that would sound like a description of, of you and, and me as well, even after we've come to Christ. Even after we've had some kind of, of maybe even a, a really radical conversion experience with God, even though we're new creations in Christ with a new nature, new affections, new desires, new desire for holiness, we still have the same old sinful habits and the same old sinful tendencies and temptations that we've always had. And this is one of the reasons that, that I trust what the Bible says. And one of the reasons I absolutely love the Bible is because it's realistic about life. It's not like Jacob you know, has been so radically changed that he never has you know, wrestling with, with sin. He never has an issue or a temptation to sin. No, he constantly has a temptation to sin. So it's realistic. The Bible's realistic about our inconsistencies. The Bible's realistic about our, our, our tendency, the tendency of, of our faith to, to just fold when things get hard. See, it, it's one thing to be changed by God, legitimately changed by God. But it's quite another to walk in the power of the one who has claimed us 
as his own and who has changed us. I've yet to meet anybody in my entire life, I've yet to meet anyone who's been born again and eventually reaches a point where there's never, ever a struggle with sin that they face. Kind of like the Johnny Cash song goes, I'm part good and part bad, but I'm redeemed. Does that sound like you? It sounds like me. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it sounds like all of us. We're such walking contradictions at times, aren't we? And if you can relate to that, if, if you can see yourself, a, a shadow of yourself in this story, then this story, the story of, of Israel or, or, or Jacob or whichever you want to call him, should give you a lot of hope. Should give you a lot of hope because he is a godly man. But I also hope that you see the need to refuse to settle for or to justify partial obedience unto the Lord because partial obedience unto the Lord is ultimately disobedience. What we need to see here is there, there doesn't need to be this internal struggle in Israel. He doesn't need to yield to the desires of the flesh. He doesn't need to yield to the old man. He doesn't need to act like Jacob. He doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. The point is that even as a changed man, a man who is legitimately changed, Israel still constantly relies on the grace of God to get him through. He's courageous, but he's inconsistent. And the same is true of you and me, isn't it? We're faithful at times, and sometimes we're not. And it would seem that there's something of a standoff going on here. If you, if you understand what, what's happening in, in, this, in this narrative, Esau isn't approaching Jacob. He's come to a certain point and he just kind of stops. Jacob is the one who's making his way to Esau. Jacob is, and this is something that we would not expect of Jacob. But he's not the only one that does something unexpected. Esau always does, or also does something that's unexpected. Let's look at verses 4 to 11. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Who could have possibly foreseen as we're going through this story, if you, if you haven't read this before, who could have possibly foreseen that this would be the way things play out in this narrative? I have to imagine that there's, there's a moment 
in which nothing but, but sheer terror is surging through Jacob's veins as Esau charges at him. And he tackles him. But it's not driven by hostility. He's doing it out of love for Jacob. He's doing it because he has longed to see Jacob and to be reconciled and reunited with Jacob. And so in a moment of just uncontrolled emotions, pent up feelings that that have been building over, over years, over two decades, the two brothers embrace they, they hug. They fall down hugging and weeping uncontrollably with one another. And there's one thing about this narrative that does strike me as kind of odd, however, and that's the fact that neither one of these brothers says a word about bygones before they embrace, before they reconcile. There's, there's no mention of the past not from Esau and not from Jacob. There's no mention of the way that Jacob had, had schemed and cheated the blessing and the birthright away from Esau. Neither one of them says a single thing about it before they reconcile. And while this might seem odd, in my opinion, in, in the way I take it, there's actually something very beautiful about this. See, in our day and age, we kind of have this idea that if we're going to be reconciled, we need to air all of our grievances. We need to to lay it all out on the table, so to speak. All the hurts, all the grievances, all the sins, all the wrongs. The the person who did the wrong thing, you know, who who sinned against somebody else, needs to, to see that list again. It all needs to be discussed in order for reconciliation to take place. Or so we think. Sometimes that's true, but that is not always the case. I would argue that there are times when that isn't the healthiest thing to do. There are times when the victim, when the person who has had something, uh, who's been sinned against, takes it as an opportunity to strike back at the perpetrator, as if they must ex- you know, exact uh, revenge verbally. Uh, before reconciliation takes place, before they're, they're willing to forgive. And sometimes that's necessary. But at the same time, real forgiveness needs to take place before somebody tells you that they're sorry. You've got to have that ready. You, 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 it already has to be dealt with in your own heart. I'm not saying that there's not a time and place for airing grievances and for laying it all out on the table. There, there certainly are. If the perpetrator doesn't understand the serious nature or, or the depth of the grievances or the depth of the damage that they've caused, sometimes it's a good idea to, to paint a big picture and let them see the whole thing. But there are also times when it's just best to let bygones be bygones, to forget about the past and to just focus on moving forward because you've already forgiven them in their heart before they've even confessed what they did to you. Now in this case, it's clear that God has been preparing both Jacob and Esau for this moment. Jacob, he he desires to be made right with Esau. That's why this is happening. This is why he had to go this way. Because he, he had the conviction that he had to make things right. And he's willing to give everything that he has. He's willing to risk it all in order to be reconciled, in order to be forgiven. He knows what he's done. 
And Esau, he's willing to give anything and everything he has in order to be reconciled too. He's willing to risk it all to forgive Jacob because he knows what Jacob's done too. So there's no need for either one of them to dig up the past and to re-scratch old wounds. There's no need for them to dig it all up. And this reunion that they have should encourage anyone who has suffered or endured through a strained relationship with someone else. Your wounds may legitimately be deep. And it may be valid. There may be good reason. It may be completely justified that your wounds would be deep. The wounds of someone you've hurt might also be deep. But here's what we need to know. God can heal those wounds. God can heal them all. He can take all your wounds and He can make something beautiful out of them. And in fact, we can expect Him to heal those wounds. Our responsibility is to simply make sure that our heart is always eager to reflect God's character by being willing to forgive and being willing to confess whichever side of the equation we may be on, even to our enemies. We must see this type, this reconciliation that's taken place here. We have to see this as an answer to Jacob's prayer the night before when he prayed this. In the previous chapter, he said to the Lord, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. So God answered that prayer. God is the one who, over some course of time, has softened Esau's heart toward Israel, or Jacob. Jacob didn't need all these theatrics, prostrating himself before Esau, having this long caravan of, of, of gifts, this long convoy of gifts lined up for him. He didn't need all the theatrics. God had done what God and only God was capable of doing. So this was, this was an answer to prayer. And the first words attributed to Esau in this entire encounter are this. Who are these with you? They're, they're, they're hugging and, and embracing each other on the ground and weeping. And finally, Esau sees that, they're, they're, that, that Jacob isn't alone, that Esau uh, you know, has some apparently new relatives. He sees this whole procession of women and young men and children around them. And here again, we see Israel prevailing over Jacob. We see Israel acting and thinking in, in proper faith and obedience unto God. As he responds that these were the children whom God had graciously given him, he recognized that everything that he had, including his family, was ultimately a gift from God. And as he introduces each of them in order of, kind of in order of social status or, or affection, we see Bilhah and Zilpah and their four boys bow down before Esau. Then Leah and her children do the same. Then finally, Rachel and Joseph bow down. And next, Esau asks what's really kind of a, a funny question. It, it seems to me, strikes me as kind of a, a comical question. He goes, what do you mean with all the company I met? In other words, this, this long convoy of gifts 
that must have been miles long. I mean, he's got 550 plus livestock that he was giving to Esau lined up uh, in order to try and soften Esau's heart. And all Esau can say is, what do you mean by all this? What's all this about? And I, I guess we can sort of give kudos to Jacob for at least being honest, at least being straightforward about his intentions, he responds to find favor in the sight of my Lord. That's the truth. You know, he, he doesn't uh, pull any punches there. What were you trying to do here? I was trying to earn your favor. Okay, that's true. Now, to an extent, we can admit that this is noble, um, perhaps generous, but at the same time, we have to remember the problem with this, this convoy of gifts was that, once again, Jacob was really taking matters into his own hands. He wasn't trusting in, in God for, for Esau's heart to be softened. He was trusting in his own plans and schemes. And so Esau, he's just kind of ready to not take them. He, he's ready to refuse the gifts. He acknowledges that he already has plenty. In fact, he seems really pretty much unfazed by the generosity or, or the size of this enormous gift. So what we need to see is that what Jacob is offering is unnecessary as far as Esau is concerned. Man, points for Esau. He seems like a nice guy, right? Now, there are some cultural nuances taking place here that we need to make sure that, we, that we're, we're aware of and that we understand. See, in that culture, you, you would not accept a gift under any circumstances from your enemy. That's probably a good idea. But it tells us that the reason that Jacob insists that Esau take the gifts, that he take the livestock, is to ensure that the two brothers had squashed their differences. And the hostility was over. The feud was gone. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this saying this. He says, quote, since Jacob insists that Esau take the gift, we are probably right in suspecting that he was not yet fully confident that God would protect him. End quote. And I'm inclined to agree. It seems that Jacob is still placing the bulk of his trust in his schemes, in his ideas. And so in light of this, in light of his having more trust in himself than in the Lord. Jacob is prevailing over Israel here. And Jacob continues to urge and insist that Esau take these gifts. One of the interesting things that, that he says in urging Esau to accept the gifts is, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. And I think there's a lot of confusion that, that arises over that, uh, over that specific line that he says. Um, but I think what he means here is something that, ref that does reflect faith on his part. It seems that Israel would mean here that in Esau receiving him favorably, Jacob sees that it was ultimately the hand of God that had turned and softened Esau's heart toward him. Because for 20 years... Jacob has feared seeing the face of Esau. If there was one face that would have given him nightmares over the years, it was the face of Esau. Seeing the face of God the night before had prepared him for seeing Esau's face. 
And just like it, it would have seemed really unlikely that God would have accepted and, and received uh, Jacob favorably, so too it seems that Esau uh, would be very unlikely to welcome and have favor upon Jacob. But Esau nevertheless did welcome Jacob or Israel with favor, unmerited favor. It's before, the, it's before they even run into each other. He's accepted him. He's forgiven him. He's ready to move on and be reconciled and reunited. And so as we consider Jacob Israel here, again, we, we see this, this mix of faith and the flesh once again. Israel's faith isn't perfect. Jacob is still struggling with these sinful tendencies but his awareness, this is something that we need to see, it's a, it's a thread that runs through this passage, is the fact that Israel is completely aware of the fact that this is all due to God's grace. We see God's grace running through this chapter out of Israel's lips. The biblical truth is that if we are reconciled to God, first and foremost, we should also desire to be reconciled to man as well. But it has to be in that order. It has to be God first and man second. But at the, sec at the same time, if we're not right with man, it's an indication that we're also not right with God either. And that's the lesson of the unforgiving servant, right? Uh, Jesus tells the, the story of a, of a man, you know, a parable of a man who is forgiven of an absolutely enormous debt that he could never pay back. But then this man goes and, in turn, refuses to forgive a much, much smaller debt of a fellow man who owed him peanuts in comparison to the debt that he had been forgiven of himself. And so the lesson was that that man should have shown a little bit of mercy when he was shown great mercy. See, we aren't called to be vindictive people, angry people who hold a grudge. In instructing the Roman church on how to act with one another, how to coexist peacefully with one another. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if we really believe this, if, if we really were to, to put this principle into, into practice, it will render us a people who are marked by an eager willingness to forgive without feeling the need to settle the score first. The forgiveness that takes place here didn't come cheap. And it certainly wasn't easy for, for Jacob. He, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders as far as he was concerned. But it does seem that Esau's forgiveness of Jacob or Israel is complete. And you would think that, you, you know, that it would lead from there to, and they went off and they you know, coexisted peacefully, happily ever after. But that's not what happened. Jacob still doesn't seem to trust that the relationship is reconciled, that God has taken care of Esau's heart. And thus his flesh is going to rear its ugly head once again as he is going to lie to Esau and he's going to disobey 
A very direct order from God as we continue. Let's look at verses 12 to 17. It says, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and I at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Sire. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. So Esau's response, basically, to to this reconciliation, this great reconciliation that took place, is basically, hey, let's let's go back to my place. You're welcome to come and, and, and live with me, stay with me. And so he invites Israel to journey back with him to Sire. But Sire, we have to remember, is located outside of the promised land. It's located outside of Canaan. And Israel apparently knows um, that he can't, or at least that he shouldn't go there. Because that's not where God has instructed him to go. God has called him back to Canaan. More specifically, he's called him to Bethel. And so Jacob's response to this invitation is to deceive his brother again. He's been forgiven of the deception that took place 20 years ago. And the first thing he does after they're reconciled is to deceive him again. It's Jacob prevailing over Israel. He makes up this excuse to avoid having Esau journeying with him. First claiming that his his children are, are so frail and that his animals would die if they're driven too hard. Neither of these things is true. And he insists that Esau lead the way and he'll stay back with his kids and, and he'll make it whenever he makes it. And we need to understand that Jacob has no intention of making it. He has no intention of following Esau back to Sire. And I suspect that it's because he thought, or he feared at least, that he was about to be set up. And so he was really failing to trust that the Lord would protect him again. And he was once again trusting in his own scheming in his own plotting, his own understanding, instead of trusting in the Lord with all of his heart and not leaning on his own understanding. And Esau, again, Esau seems like such a nice guy. He he seems to be okay with Jacob following behind and staying with his family, and he offers to leave some of the 400 men that he had brought with him with Jacob and his family. Now, to be honest, we don't know. We don't know definitively um, if a setup was coming or not. Why did Esau want to leave some of his men with Jacob and his family? Was it 
as protection against thieves and robbers that would have uh, been hiding out in the wilderness waiting for um, you know, somebody like Jacob and, and his family to, to wander through. I'd say that's probably the case, but it, it's also possible, although it seems unlikely, that Esau wanted some members of his army to go with Jacob to make sure that Jacob followed so that Esau could set him up and have his revenge. Either way, though, whatever the case, we see that Jacob is refusing or failing to trust in the Lord here. And so there's this this mix of of faithfulness and the flesh of Israel and Jacob once again. Israel was right to not go back with Esau because God wanted Israel to return to Bethel. But Jacob was in sin because he did it the wrong way. He did the right thing the wrong way. You know that you can do that? You can do the right thing in a sinful way? That sounds weird, doesn't it? You can, you can do the right thing, not go back to Sire, but do it in a sinful way by deceiving. And, and even, even the right that he did wasn't really right. Because instead of returning to Bethel, we see in verse 17 that he went and settled in a region called Sukkoth. Now that was back north across the Jabbok River, and it was a step in the wrong direction, geographically and spiritually. It was a step in the wrong direction. The fact that he didn't do exactly what God had commanded him to do shows us that he was still the same old Jacob wrestling with the new man, Israel. He's Israel, but he's Jacob. He had faith in God. But his flesh, his flesh was so strong at times. And you've probably been in a situation that's similar, I guess, in a way, to what Israel faced here. Maybe you get invited to go and do something, and you know that it isn't what God would have you do. And so instead of being forthright about it, you, you actually put yourself between a rock and a hard place. You don't want to dishonor the Lord by going, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, you don't want to hurt the feelings of the people who invited you to go. And so what do you do? You you make up some kind of excuse that would seem reasonable. So you don't go, but again, you're doing the wrong thing sinfully by deceiving. You're doing the right thing, but you're doing it the wrong way. And what happens when you do that? Well, well, first of all, you've convinced yourself that lying is an option. That's not good. But maybe worse than that, long term, maybe worse than that, you've taught yourself how to justify sin. How to do the right thing the wrong way and still feel good about it. You've taught yourself how to justify sin. And that, friends, is very dangerous. I mean, what should Jacob have done here? He should have just been straightforward. What would have been so wrong, so offensive, so difficult about saying, you know, I'd love to spend time with you back in your homeland, brother, but the Lord Himself has commanded me to go to Bethel. What would have been so hard about that? See, the best policy is just to be open and honest about it. If somebody invites you to do something that 
you feel dishonors the Lord, it's okay to tell them that you just don't feel right about it and that you feel it's your conviction that you would be dishonoring the Lord, that you would be disobedient unto the Lord by going. And if they don't understand at that point, maybe they need to have their feelings hurt anyway. And you need to be careful about letting them have too much influence on you. If they're, if, if they're going to be a temptation that lures you away from full obedience unto the Lord. So Jacob parts ways with Esau. This is it. There's, there's no goodbye. There, there's no happily ever after. They just part ways. Because Jacob deceives Esau. Esau starts heading back, trusting that Jacob is back there, and he doesn't go. It's deceptive. But he does make his way back into Canaan. Let's look at verses 18 to 20. It says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So Jacob goes into Sukkoth and he settles in a city called Shechem. Let me ask this, where should Israel or Jacob have gone? To Bethel. He should have gone to Bethel, but, but at least he's in Canaan. Ah, partial obedience. Isn't it good enough? I mean, he's in Canaan. Isn't that close enough? No. Because it's the promised land, but it's not Bethel. It's not where God had instructed him to go. But we do see that God had a grip on Israel's heart, and he wasn't letting it go. Because when Israel settles, he builds an altar. And we have no record of him over the, past pre- or the, the previous 20 years. We have no record of him ever doing that while he was living with his uncle Laban. So this is, this is certainly, um, or at least it, it appears to be, an act of genuine worship. What we see here is a man who's so much like you and me. He's duplicitous. He's, he's Israel, the changed man, but he's Jacob, the old man, at the same time. And you can't be both. You can't give yourself 100% to opposing directions. That's why Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You've got to make a choice. What are you going to commit to? See, either we have an ultimate allegiance to God or to things idols that are far less worthy of our allegiance, that'll draw us away from God. And Jacob, Israel, is, is trying to do both. He's, he's trying to, to serve and, and follow the Lord, but he's, he ends up in another place. He ends up in Shechem. He's duplicitous. He, he's, he's just like you and me in that sense, isn't he? The sad reality is that if, if we were to, to just take this chapter by itself, just cut off everything that came before it, everything that comes after it, just, just make a movie about this chapter alone, 
and tally up points for positive character points and, and negative character points between Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out way ahead. Esau comes out way ahead in terms of positive character points. He's this likable guy who who comes across as kind. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's generous. He's loyal. He's a very likable guy. And Jacob, on the other hand, he's still a schemer. He's he's still a deceiver. Esau, he's he's rich and he's powerful. And, And Jacob is... Well, he's, he's less rich than he was before he came into this chapter. And so if you were to try to figure out who is God's child here, who is God's man, just taking this chapter by itself, it would seem clear that Esau is the one. Esau must be God's man. Esau is upstanding. Esau is virtuous. Esau is likable. He looks also like he's far more blessed than Jacob has been because he's got so much wealth that Jacob's enormous gift to him doesn't even faze him. He's like, I don't need it. I've got so much stuff. So between the lines here, what we see is the beauty of God's sovereign choice in salvation. Because God doesn't just pick the the most upstanding and nice, noble, generous people to call His own. No, the the reason that Esau is the way that he is is because he's got it all. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got prestige. I mean, he's got an army of 400 guys backing him up. He's got everything that this world has to offer. but he doesn't have God. Lest we forget that God Himself says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. You see, God loved Jacob too much to let him cling to the things of this world. God loved Israel too much to allow him to be comfortable in this world. God was constantly working all things to grow Jacob slash Israel in godly virtue. And thus God was constantly, constantly beating Jacob, disciplining Jacob, not letting him grow comfortable with the things of this world. Despite Jacob's efforts to find comfort, to find happiness in the things of this world, God's plan for Jacob, which would be fulfilled, was that Jacob would only find comfort in God Himself. And Jacob's resistance is just an exercise in futility. Because who can thwart the will of God? Nobody. Nobody. Ask Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. And so Jacob disobeys God, settles in Shechem. And if you want a spoiler, if you don't want a spoiler, you can plug your ears, but if you want a spoiler, there will be terrible, terrible consequences for his partial obedience, which is really ultimately 
disobedience. In chapter 34, we're going to see Jacob's life absolutely fall apart at the seams. Why? Because of his disobedience in chapter 33. So I want to finish by by challenging you to see the same struggles in yourself that we see in Jacob. To see that there, there is this struggle that every single child of God, every single one of us who are in Christ faces on a day-in, day-out basis, and that is the battle between the Spirit and the flesh. The Spirit and the flesh. Do you know what your weaknesses are? Do you know what things cause you cause your flesh to stumble? Because every single one of us has things, maybe idols, that lure us and tempt us to walk away from God. Maybe just small steps. Maybe just partial compromises. Things which tempt us to make just itty-bitty compromises in our walk. But when you add up all the compromises, you see that the partial obedience adds up to total disobedience. And be very careful about justifying sin. The danger with justifying sin is that not only does it become easier and easier every time you do it, but it also becomes more automatic every time you do it. It also becomes more automatic. So instead of trying to justify your sin, repent and confess your sins to the Lord. Remembering that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse us, renew us, to forgive us. And remember that He paid for those sins that you're confessing and that you're repenting of. He bore the wrath of God in your place. Not so that you could continue in your sin, but so that you could be broken free from the power of sin in your life. See, every one of us has two appetites. Every one of us has the spirit and the flesh. Every one of us. And you can only feed one of those in any given moment. You will face temptations to walk in the flesh and to yield to the flesh every day for the rest of your life. You will. It's it's guaranteed. But know this. Greater is He who is in you than he who's in the world. It might not always feel like that. But greater is He who's in you than he who's in the world. And you can add as many zeros as you want to that check. The funds are there. The check's good. His grace is always sufficient to cover every sin. So confess. Repent. And walk with the Lord. If we see obedience as as the test of building our lives on the solid rock, the foundation of Christ, then we must also understand that building half of a house on a solid foundation and half of your house on sinking sand is just as dangerous and perhaps foolish as building the whole thing on sinking sand. So repent. Believe in Christ and refuse to settle for partial obedience. Build it all.
on the solid rock, on Christ Jesus. Keep pursuing, keep striving, keep growing. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it is so relevant to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we see your grace so clearly on display in this chapter. And thank you for the understanding that without your grace, we would be just completely lost. Thank you for the understanding that even after we come to Christ, even after He indwells in us, we need grace every day, every moment of every day. And so we pray, Father, that You would continue working all things, causing things to work together to make us more like Christ. That we would walk in a way that honors Him, and glorifies Him by not feeding the flesh and the desires of the flesh, but by living in the power of the Spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us strength through Him to glorify and honor Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.